What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. All right, here we go. Amanda, how's it going? I'm doing great. So I'm, happy to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Like, <laughs> I don't know where this is going to go, but wherever <laughs> it goes, I know it's going to be something amazing that we all can appreciate and, like, take a lot away from. Thank you so much. I am so honored to be invited to be here. I mean that sincerely. Uh, just looking at some of the other ones, you know, Jackie yeah. Sims and yeah. Jamel Campbell Gooch, I... I the fact you would even consider me in their same company is such an honor. You know, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. And I think everybody's experience and journey is important, you know. Yeah. Um, and just for me, I'm a, you know, maybe I'm like nosy and I just want to know about everybody's experience and journey. But I just like exploring people and humanities and like maybe other people do too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so Why do you think I'm a second therapist? <laughs> <laughs> I get to hear everyone's stories, and yeah, I am yeah. endlessly fascinated, like you, by yeah. everybody's story. I always want to know what's behind what makes people tick. Yeah, yeah. And so um, maybe we'll find out what makes you tick today. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, so can you just uh, like tell us a little bit about yourself? You know where you're from, your background. Sure. I'm originally from New England. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut, uh, but we moved around quite a bit. My, I like to consider myself bicultural. Uh, I have a father whose family was originally from very rural middle Georgia and a mother who came from Italian immigrants from the Northeast. And there were two very different faith traditions, two very different cultural traditions. And so... Um, yeah, it was very different experience of both of those parts of the extended family. Lovely people on both sides. And so uh, where did you see like those cultural differences kind of mm-hmm. have its challenges growing up? Uh, I would say the role of women mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent. The Southern Baptist Church that my father grew up in was very hellfire and brimstone, which was very different from the old Catholic priests in the Northeast um, doing their thing. And um, the food, the it, it's it's just a very different experience of life. Right. And as somebody who, as you know, um, with communication is that you're allowed to be expressive. You're allowed to let people know that you've had a bad day. But here, especially, I think, um, for women, but also for men, you have to put a smile on your face and always act like everything's okay. And that was never a part of my upbringing in the Northeast. Like, if you were having a bad day or you didn't like somebody, you know, you said it out loud. Y'all are way more expressive in the Northeast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For better or for worse. <laughs> and so, uh, growing up with that, like, kind of just bicultural upbringing, mm-hmm. which one kind of tended to dominate more than the other? You think? I would say the Italian, uh, okay. because I lived up there longer than I had lived in the South, and um, being around my mother's family and being part of the Northeast. So I would think, even though I've lived most of my life in the South, that I still more identify with that kind of um, culture. 
I am a psychotherapist in private practice. Okay. I've um, worked for nonprofits and um, community mental health most of my career, uh, but now I'm in private practice. So what uh, inspired you to get into that pr profession? Oh, now that's a long story. <laughs> I don't know if you're ready for that one. Oh, we can abbreviate it. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. If you can do your best, yeah. No. Um, actually, I... Um, became involved in the Vanderbilt Prison Project. That's what brought me to Nashville, was to go to Vanderbilt for college. And I got very involved in the prison project. And um, after college, I moved to Atlanta to be near uh, that part of the family and ended up working as a parole officer in uh, inner city Atlanta. And I saw so much um, mental illness I would say 95% of uh, my clients were people of color. So I immediately, just based on the ratio, saw that something was amiss there and um, saw people who had been failed at every step of their lives, every from kindergarten on, if not from when they were born. And that actually was exactly what inspired me and that made the goal of being a psychotherapist um, come into existence because I wanted to help people right. before they got uh, to the point that they were um, going to prison. Well, this is so, woo, you gave me a lot to work with. You know, mental <laughs> health, parole, like the, the, just the police system in general. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? <laughs> Ooh, let me tell you. The carceral system uh, is a system that is built on white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It is, um, I think, very much intentionally designed to keep poor people and people of color trapped mm -hmm. uh, in their circumstances. And the, it, it is a uh, profit motive that absolutely um, needs to be ended. There should be no profit motive for incarcerating people. There should be no profit motive for um, the school-to-prison pipeline, right. as you, you know, um, we've worked on. And it's just got to be dismantled. And it's not going to be dismantled until people come to see those systems for what they really are. And I am a little more heartened lately than I was in the 90s and the early aughts um, by feeling that my white friends and family had a completely irrational trust and belief in a system that was deeply corrupt. So... When did you realize, because, you, you know, you, you got into the system, mm -hmm. you know, in the, on, on the parole side, when did you realize, like, oh, shit, like, yeah, this is, like, I didn't know, like, racism and white supremacy did damage or did harm, or maybe I didn't even wear of, of mm -hmm. those terms, really, um, before you got into that sector. Right. I'd have to go back a little bit farther than that. Um, Coming from the Northeast, I, I lived in a predominantly white suburb of New York. But because of the proximity to New York, it was actually a pretty diverse place in a lot of ways. You know, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Foster, was black, and she was very well respected in the school. Um, she's a brilliant woman, one of the best teachers I've ever had. And so there were not a lot of people of color, but the people of color in town I think were very much respected. Sometimes they were specifically selected to go to the schools in our town because they were academically amazing. They all went on to Ivy League universities. Um, 
but I, my best friend in ninth grade, um, who's still like a sister to me, uh, was from the Caribbean, you know, um, uh, from Trinidad. Um, some of my dearest friends from today were refugees from S South America, from Chile, you know, political um, asylum here in the United States. So I had exposure to people of different cultures, I think, in a way that um, not a lot of white folks in the South do. They live in, I think, much more homogenous right. uh, neighborhoods, much more homogenous churches. Right. Um, Segregation. Segregation. <laughs> but yeah. do you know what it was? It was actually, um, early to answer your question, early on in my career, um, going, you know, traveling through Atlanta and Ponce de Leon Avenue, I don't know if you're familiar I'm, with I'm Atlanta, it is a pretty big thoroughfare in Atlanta. It runs east to west. And the neighborhood, like here, mm -hmm. uh, was um, very uh, not affluent. I don't want to say that they were rich, but it was just sort of like a middle class neighborhood. And then, like, you crossed Ponce de Leon, and it was um, very neglected. Right. And I went back to the office and I asked my boss. Um, what is the deal with um, Ponce? And he asked me, and I said, it's white and middle class on one side and it's poor and black on the other. How can there be such a stark difference from one side of the street to the other? And that's when I learned about redlining, um, which I had not known about. I was 22 or 23 and I was just stunned. And then I was embarrassed that I was so stunned that I hadn't known uh, about that practice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people probably still don't know a lot about redlining and it's like the residual like effects that it had to this day. Absolutely. On communities, on voting, um, property, all of that stuff. All of that. I mean, we still have cases today. I was just reading one two or three days ago of black families having to enlist some white friend or white family member to show their house. And their assessment doubles. I mean, it's. I've seen that same one. They like basically covered up that like there was a black yes. family house and had a. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. In 20, almost 22, that that could still be a. And, and people very often, I find, don't know their own history. They don't know their own 20th century history. Right. They really don't teach a lot of 20th century history, I think, in the entire country and especially in the South about things like the GI Bill right. and the things that the black veterans didn't receive when they got home. And that lifted a lot of people out of poverty, people who could buy a house or right. go to school or start a business, um, being able to get very low-cost mortgages right. back after post-World War II, like, which were denied to people yeah, in black, black folks, neighborhoods. Black folks couldn't even get life insurance nope. at one time. I and mean, that's how many people build generational wealth, right? Absolutely. $200,000, policies. Absolutely. And, you know, your a parent dies or something like that, and their wealth can be passed on. Nope. Absolutely. Not here. Not here. <laughs> so, wow, okay. I'm getting excited. So, <laughs> you mentioned just in your own friends and your family, just the lack of perspective and awareness about white supremacy, racism, mm -hmm. and all those things. What have you been able to do mm -hmm. um, as a white woman, 
as an mm-hmm. ally, which we'll get into uh, a little more too, mm-hmm. to kind of confront uh, white supremacy and racism from a from a personal perspective mm-hmm. and also from a communal perspective mm-hmm. about those who may just not be aware. You have to be like, oh, that's kind of racist or discriminatory, don't you think? Right. Um, I remember being in high school and saying in the group, we were in a class and for some reason we were just talking and maybe the teacher stepped out and we were talking about crime and things like that. And um, I said that a black person driving through a white neighborhood was in way more danger than a white person driving through a black neighborhood. And I was completely laughed at. And so just from that point forward, as you know me, taking it upon myself right. uh, to point out right. uh, to people along the way how um, distorted and irrational their conceptions are of race, of black people, of things that they don't know anything about. And that's part of white supremacy, is it not? It is. is that idea, I always say, I hope to be celebrated one day uh, as much as a mediocre white man is. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you have to be like twice as good as right. them to get half the respect, right? right? right. Um, so pointing it out when I saw it, um, was definitely a big part of it, especially as a parole officer. It was a very progressive time. I, I mean, we were trying to do what we could to um, help people get, you know, I, I help people get mental health treatment. I help them get substance abuse treatment and really, really made an effort to um, help people get out of the system, get the hooks of the system out of them. I, I tried to free people. I had I very much early on did a lot of reading on social activism, everything from um, Karl Marx and right. you know the old philosophers of you know our relationship to labor, you know, on up through Malcolm X and Fred Hampton and right. everything like that. And very much believed that uh, nobody's free until we're all free. And so I don't consider myself free. Did you get any pushback? (laughs) (laughs) What did that pushback look like when you tried to educate, make people aware of some of the actions and some of the um, things that they, you know, mannerism or white supremacy or racism that they was carrying around, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's psychological or like literally physically Mm -hmm. carrying around? Right. Um... There was an incident one time after a U2 concert. I had gone with a coworker who very uh, generously gifted me the ticket. And we were in downtown Atlanta at 2 a.m. And um, a woman came around the corner and almost hit him. But of course, he and his friends were intoxicated and um, stumbling around. So it really, she was in the right. And um, she honked or yelled at him, get out of the way, or you know something like that. And they used the N-word. They screamed the N-word at her uh, in the middle of Atlanta. And um, so I didn't feel like having a conversation with somebody who was drunk. I got right. on the MARTA and home and away from him as uh, soon as possible. But we had a conversation about it, to say the least. Mm. And it did not go well. 
and he could not hear me. I mean, I thought he was, it went beyond being defensive, and I think that's the thing I don't have to tell you. You see in people when you challenge their beliefs around these things, this is, this is how, it's so baked into the system, it's how we're raised to perceive the world. It's, it is, it is a cult. Right. It, the, and it's very much like a narcissistic, abusive relationship, I think, a lot of the times that the white supremacy has uh, with the black community, um, scapegoating them, projecting blame onto them, um, gaslighting and saying, this is your fault and actually you have it better than we should actually treat you. All of that is perfectly paralleled with a abusive relationship and the relationship that you would have if you were part of a cult. And so it, it's not even like a defensiveness. It's not even like this, oh, well, not me and my friends. We're not racist. It is literally, you're challenging somebody's identity. Right. And it, it really is like the matrix. It right. is really sort of unhooking yourself from this machine and realizing that everything you've been taught is is false. It's just, it is Wizard of Oz right. Right. Uh, type stuff, that there is no great wizard. Right. It's just this pitiful man behind a curtain trying to keep himself up at the top of some sick pyramid. And so I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't think it's a question I've ever asked mm -hmm. before. Um, it's, so it's a two-part question. The first part is, is it harder to navigate being a white ally mm -hmm. or trying to get other white folks to understand their white supremacist racism ways of mannerisms? The latter. I find it very easy to be a white ally um, that comes with a certain degree of shame for the ways in which I think I bought into it and um, probably white-splained <laughs> stuff at points right. in my own life. And um, I don't feel like we've done enough white allies. We simply haven't to confront white folks um, and really start dismantling some of these systems. It's not just interpersonally. Right. I think interpersonally, a lot of white people do just fine, but it's helping them to see how really rotten and corrupted a lot of our systems are. And that is very challenging. And I have received a lot of negative feedback about that. And people who know me well know that I have a history of studying like policing. Mm -hmm. In undergraduate and graduate school, this isn't just like some emotional reaction or something of the day. Like all of this coming, I mean, this has been a conversation for me since the mid-80s. You know, right. nothing about it is new. Um, so the latter, most definitely. I, I've been really stunned um, by how welcomed I have been as an ally. And I don't know if that's because... Um, I am a fairly authentic person. I don't have much of a filter, so it's not hard to figure out who right, I am right. uh, or what. I still don't know exactly why that is. But, um, but no, it has been extraordinarily difficult. Like, at times, it has really, um, has really gotten to me. What, what, can you speak on that a little more about a specific time? Um, or just how it, like, yeah. just the rage... 
Yeah, it is rage. It is rage. And maybe it is because I've never been somebody who has been particularly threatened when I've learned new information. It hasn't been fun at times right. uh, to be like, ooh, I was, <laughs> I was wrong about that. Right. You know, we all like to believe that we're right about everything. Um, but it hasn't been that difficult to make that pivot. Was, okay, new information, you know. Um, but it seems to me to be a betrayal. And uh, as you know, I'm a fairly anti-capitalistic person. And I believe that too is by design, that we are designed to be alienated from one another. And so I spend a lot of my time on social media. I spend a lot of my time with my friends and family um, trying to bring a sense of class consciousness and a sense of like, we don't need to be alienated from one another. They're whispering in our ears, you know, black people are criminals, they're right. scary and dangerous, you know, and they're whispering in y'all's ears, they hate you, they want, you know, right. and none of it's true. I mean, um, we have so much more, I know that sounds so trite, but we do have so much more in common mm -hmm. than we have in differences. Um, but a lot of people, White, my white friends and white family have just never spent time in black homes. They've never spent time, time with people. And I have. I've had the benefit of that. I've been in some of the poorest homes in this country. I've done community service projects with um, black people in the Mississippi Delta that were living in conditions out of the you know 19th century. And um, big guests in their homes and just the loveliest people. And having that perspective, and just all the homes I went into as a parole officer, I, I spent more time with everybody's moms and aunties and grandmas and, you know. Um, I think that's one of our biggest, like, barriers that we have, especially mm -hmm. in the South, right? Where mm -hmm. we're all in our, like, community, our bubble. Our right? bubble. Essentially, we all in our bubble, and so unless you... As you learn, and unless you have some like parents or somebody that's mm -hmm. gonna really like make it an intentional effort to mm -hmm. expose you to different cultures so you can go in mm -hmm. their perspective, it's very easy for us to like be close minded and really believe what you know, depending on what side you're on, on like, oh, this is true or this is not true, or this is this is exactly. false, or this is not false. And so, that intentionality that you've had, but also others need to have to change that perspective, at least learn and be open right. to And if you're wrong, like you said, somebody got to do a separate thing. Like, ah, that's, oh, yeah. what, ah, ah, why was I thinking that way? But at least, yeah. but like, but that's authentic and honest and people can mm -hmm. accept that. Like, right. okay, you was thinking that way and you're trying to do the self-work. You're trying to right. do the self-healing and so you can be better and then essentially, you know, be an ally, be a better ally. Absolutely. Because it's a journey, right? Yeah. So, like, I'll give you an example. When I worked at juvenile court uh, for two years, I was a caseworker for truancy cases. And I saw a lot of cases involving black children uh, who were recipients of special ed services. And so I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the school system, but if you're in special education, you have what's called an individual education plan, an IEP. And, you know, it has the goals for the child and you, you know, review them. Well, when a child gets in trouble, and I don't know if it's still this way, uh, but, you know, somehow is in trouble in school, 
as they decide the discipline, they have to have what's called a manifestation determination. Is this behavior a manifestation of the child's special need, right? right? And what I found over and over and over again is that white children were treated as if, it, like when they had the IEP and the manifestation determination, as if it were a mental health issue, which it almost always was um, to some degree or another. And that most of my black children who had most of them some serious trauma issues um, were treated as a behavioral issue. Mm. And um, the zeal with which school officials would try to suspend and expel these children, thereby funneling them into the school to prison pipeline, um, was awful. And so I started showing up at the IEP meetings <laughs> and um, making sure that these children were being offered the same services and the same testing. Because at that point, you know, you also test them. They had two different designations at the time, um, emotionally disturbed or severely emotionally disturbed. And if they qualified for that, then they received certain services within school, uh, maybe being moved to what was called a moderate intervention program, MIP. Uh, fragile class where they didn't have to be, you know, um, in the general population. Or with one of my students that I worked with who had a horrific history of trauma, um, she, I got her permission to just change classes sort of like a minute after every, because you know what it's like in a middle school, everybody right. in the hallway, you right. know, she just couldn't, with her PTSD, she couldn't handle it. And once we got that what's called a 504 modification for her, she was able to get back into school. She just could not handle being in a tight space with a bunch of other um, kids. But looking back on that, I think I was too bossy with those children's parents. Right. Uh, I should have been more of an uh, educator and a support system um, but I think I told them what to do too much, thinking I was doing that to try to help their child, but it wasn't respectful. So I've been having conversations with some of um, my white friends that's in community organizing. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to build power in community, mm -hmm. um, and that community being like the black and brown community, mm -hmm. communities that they're going to come from. Right. And um, they have shared with me just some some struggles of navigating how to be an ally. Yes. Um, making sure they're not too bossy. Mm -hmm. um, making sure they're, you know, not that, that white male that thinks they know everything mm -hmm. or that, that white woman that feels like she knows what's right or not what's right. Mm -hmm. or, you know, that type of thing. And that's something, you know, as a black man, I, 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 I can't, under, I don't, I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I want to take this opportunity to, for you to give suggestions or things that you've learned in your journey mm -hmm. as an ally on how to the best navigate ally situations mm -hmm. where you're not projecting your whiteness yes. on the situation overbearingly. Right. I mean, understanding how to, you know, navigate that. Um, and maybe it may be some situation you'll never probably be able to navigate, depending who's in leadership, right? Absolutely. Um, but making sure that you're that you are you know, doing the best you can and practicing the best ally type of situation, methods that right. you can? Well, I don't know the answer to that because <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm there yet. 
Um, I make mistakes all the time uh, and think about it later and say, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Um, I think one of the, if not the most important, one of the most important things is that these things have to be black-led. These efforts, no matter how well-meaning we are, they have to be led by the people who are most affected by the problem. There's been this just persistent disrespect of people, especially along class lines, um, that they don't know their own situation, they need to be assessed and told what their issues are, and you know, whether it's a white savior situation or just very well-meaning people, um, it just has to be led um, in credible messengers. You know, we're, we're working on uh, mental health crisis response and people thinking that just anybody can go into a mental health situation that I'm just thrilled to hear. And, you know, this paradigm of, you know, people that people in crisis know are going to be the best people to help manage that crisis. So I would say, um, taking a back seat, just yeah. being, you know, there's an old expression about, you know, too many chiefs, not enough Indians. I'm yeah. really happy to be an Indian um, because I don't know better. I, I just don't. And recognizing what you don't know and having some humility about that as well and not trying to separate yourself from uh, your friends and family that don't get it. Oh, my God. You know, Right. You don't get it. We right. still don't get it. We still have so long to go. Um, but feeling that camaraderie right. with people and feeling like um, these things hurt us all. Right. Yeah, yeah you know? we're, all, we're all affected by it. We're reason, all affected by it. The reason I ask that because there are some really, like yourself, really intelligent um, white people. Mm -hmm. Non-people, non-people uh, non, non, uh, uh, that are not of color, mm -hmm. um, that 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 really want to like help build, mm -hmm. um, and that it's a it's a hurt to the ego a lot of times because they know they're intelligent, like and we might even know that, right? Mm -hmm. But like being able, like you said, to take that back seat and say, okay, mm -hmm. let me let me check my ego, mm -hmm. let me understand, like. This is not my fight. Even though mm -hmm. I want to be a part of it, this is not my fight. This is mm -hmm. not my issues, and I really want to. I really want to get in there, but right. you gotta like suppress that a little bit, right? And or find a better way to navigate and and let your 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 resources, your talents mm -hmm. be known, so you know you can be pulled in. Um, and I know that got, that has to be that has to be difficult at times. Um, I think it is extraordinarily difficult for other people. I have not found that. Uh, to be particularly difficult. The reason that I'm so passionate about it is because I want to be that credible messenger right. to fellow white people. Right. Um, because th it's so easy to be dismissed unless you have some sort of experience, right? right? So part of the reason that I want to be involved is that they can't dismiss me. Right. Uh, I, I know that all this, especially, you know, you and I have worked around criminal justice issues uh, they can't dismiss me. I, I'm a former law enforcement officer. Right. Um, if I say something about mental health, they can't dismiss me. I'm a psychotherapist with a master's degree in mental health. Right. Um, I just feel uh, like I'm Liam Neeson. You know, I have a certain set of skills. 
Uh, and so I feel like I'm a credible messenger with regard to other people. And so I have, I feel an obligation because I'm in such a unique situation right. um, where I've seen so many different perspectives. Uh, you know, I've been on, you know, every side in every home, right. seeing everything as it's broken, you know, seeing things happen in real time that I need to use my voice, but I need to use my voice with other white people. I'm ready to play this back right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I hope people are really like chiming in because this is this is. Oh, let me tell you, thank you, Amanda. I am no, no, so honored you. that you would even no, want to interview you. me. No, no, thank you. Um, do you feel um, that we could overcome? Um, and this is kind of like a loaded question, and this is this is dependent on where your mind goes. Mm -hmm. It can be different perspective on this. Do you think, as a as a as a society, as a country, you know, in the, mm -hmm. of the United States, that we can overcome um, racism and white supremacy? That's not a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you thanked me before you hit me with the big one. <laughs> you were flattering my ego there, and like. How do we solve white supremacy, Amanda? Well, as you and I have discussed, it's not like this everywhere in the world. Right. In that the experience of being a black person abroad, um, and that's why I'm so excited about your Black Youth Abroad program. Mm -hmm. It's just wonderful. Um, is that it's just, this is, it doesn't have to be like this. It's not like this is everywhere in the world, right? right. Um, it's not like every white person everywhere grows up in a culture where they feel um, superior just by virtue of their skin color. But I've got to tell you, again, this is a conversation I've been having since the mid 80s. Social media has pierced that bubble and I know that a lot of ugliness has come out and I despise what um, just hate and um, nastiness has been exchanged, but I feel like it's like an infection that needed to be lanced, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the message is starting to get through right. to people. They're starting to wake up. They're starting, I think, with, and it's, horrible that it's taken this but with actually getting to see these police killings right. and um being like oh oh my he wasn't aggressive at all in that video and it's like yeah this is what we've been trying to tell you right. is that people are being murdered for no reason right. um i i have more hope now i know that sounds strange than i have in my life i wasn't sure that we would make any progress on it and I think that social media has really been able uh, to pierce those bubbles that we talked about and get the message through to people. And I see a lot of soul searching going on. I see a lot of people um, starting to allow themselves to get past that defensiveness and that like, oh, that's me. <laughs> see? And I'll be honest with you, the whole Karen thing, I think, has been a wake up for white women. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I have asked for people's managers' names and numbers more times than I can imagine. Um, probably less so with black people. Um, but 
I always thought that they, I didn't want to bug them. It wasn't their problem. It was a policy of the store or what have you that I had a problem with. So I didn't want to, you know, take up their time. Um, but I think a lot of white women have seen those videos and seen, um, the havoc that it creates in the, um, somebody can die. Yes. Right, Especially with the police. Now, when yeah. I say Karen, I'm yeah. talking about, you know, in a store asking to see the manager. But yeah. I think a lot of white women who have called the police right. um, did not realize that they were putting anybody in danger. And now they do. And I know that they're not making those calls the way that they used to. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, so I am more hopeful than I ever have been. But I, I would be lying if I said uh, I thought we could. It's so baked into everything. Yeah, it is. And that's like, that's the systemic part of it. It, mm-hmm. just, it just literally is the foundation of every single facet of mm-hmm. just our life. Absolutely. And it, it affects us all on different levels and different spectrums, but mm-hmm. we're all wrapped up into it. Yes. And it's just the United States of America. Oh, my gosh. It's a lie. It's, <laughs> it's it's all one big Ponzi scheme, isn't right. it? Yeah, it's you just, know, they have, the United States have done a massive job of just just manipulating and just conditioning everybody. The cult of America. It's just, it just it is so similar to those same dynamics as you think you found this wonderful thing and right. you believed your whole life that this is a wonderful thing and you find out it's this deeply destructive, corrupt, uh, it's not what you have um, been told your whole life that it is. Right. And, and even with the social media, even with the things being on camera, people are still having a hard time like conceptualizing like, oh, yeah. Racism and white supremacy is a real thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and still trying to isolate themselves from that reality is, 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 is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. And so what, what can community do mm-hmm. as a collective, all of us, right, mm-hmm. to, to try to best combat what's going on, these, these critical social issues that we all deal with on, on different spectrums, what can community do mm-hmm. um, from your perspective and just suggestions to, to combat this? Right. Um, I've tried a couple of things over the years. Um, I remember when I was in community mental health, I wanted to do a mixed play group between um, the mothers um, that we served in our um with our um, community programs and maybe some of the mothers uh, who were volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I thought that the white volunteers from West Nashville um, could help mentor those mothers, uh, which is why I never did it, because that's what the only thing people would agree to, is because I thought it would be a wonderful way to get some of those women into people's homes. Right and see them with their children and see how much we have in common. You know, I mentioned going to Mississippi and I stayed with a lady out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Oh my God, it was so rural. Um, Named Betty Ann. 
who welcomed us into her home. And I sat down with Betty Ann and we had so much in common. And here is this woman, this poor black woman in Mississippi, and here's you know this college student um, from New England. And we had so much in common and just being a guest in her home and being a recipient of her generosity and her wisdom I think would be a wonderful experience for a lot of people. And so I suggested the mixed play group, but I think really we need to be in each other's homes. I know COVID makes that incredibly difficult, but um, spending time with each other. Right. Uh, and I don't think that necessarily goes because I think black people are subjected to white culture, you right. know, daily. Uh, I think... Y'all don't have nearly the need for it, but I absolutely believe that it would do everybody a lot of good um, to spend some time um, in neighborhoods. You know, uh, I remember going to a conference in Chicago and white people were like, you're driving to Chicago? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm driving to Chicago by myself. I'm going to a conference. And they're like, downtown Chicago? I was like, yeah. And then it was like, oh, it took me a minute. Yeah. I, I've been in every right. black neighborhood in Atlanta. I've been in every black neighborhood in Nashville, and I do not feel unsafe. Yeah, no, and I think, like, again, the intentionality, mm-hmm. I think that's what we all need. Because mm-hmm. if we don't have that, we can talk about it. Oh, I would love to go visit, like, North Nashville or West. I would mm-hmm. love to go visit these places, but, you know, if we're not intentional about it, or trying to, you know, reach out and say, or just mm-hmm. drive through, right? You're not, yeah, ain't nothing gonna happen to you. Just drive through and just like try to interact with the things that are going on. And, you know, because I know just growing up here, I didn't, I didn't, I thought every, I thought everybody was black. <laughs> oh, I, I saw that yeah, on your yeah, Jamel yeah, episode, yeah. 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 I, 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 you would think every, I thought they, because I was in my black cultural bubble mm-hmm. and, um, like a good friend of mine, like Steve Bennett, mm-hmm. you know, um, he 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 would have thought everybody was you know, was white, and we mm-hmm. both from born and raised in Nashville, right? But two different mm-hmm. like just worlds, right? And like he never felt the need to you know cross over, and I never felt the need to cross mm-hmm. over. But there needs to be more intentionality, so we can you know so so we can get to know each other mm-hmm. as a community and really Absolutely. know what's going on in our city. Uh, and speaking of what's going on in our city, because uh, I know this is your this is your your field mental health. Yes. And so I want to talk on that a little bit to kind of close this out and kind of figure out what is going on um, in the mental health world, especially around like policing and making sure mm-hmm. our mental health um, community um, is getting the right support and not just being jailed mm-hmm. uh, for having a, you know, a mental health disability. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a couple of efforts. I think um, you're familiar with what the Mental Health Cooperative is doing. They're partnering with MNPD um, to go out on crisis calls uh, as part of a crisis intervention team. Um, we worked on that for years, um, and MNPD would not get on board with that. I think once we talked about not including MNPD, then they were willing to partner with the mental health co-op on that. Um, but again, not the ideal situation, um, especially in situations where there's literally no crime involved. You just have somebody in crisis. Uh, There's no reason for an officer to be there. And I think officers would say that they're not qualified to be there. You know, if someone's not committing a crime, they don't need to be involved. Uh, Officers have said that to me before. Um, 
so there's that. There is Noah, which a group you and I have both worked with are trying to um, work on a um, non-police response um, involving, you know, mental health clinicians being sent out. But once again, that is not community-led um, and doesn't involve the credible messengers we talked about in terms of people that they know and trust, you know, neighbors or, you know, people from... Um, their church or what have you being involved. And I understand there's issues of being, you know, um, embarrassed, you know, having a mental health crisis. Um, When I worked at the psychiatric hospital at Vanderbilt, I ran into somebody I knew through church. um, And I know she was very uh, embarrassed by that. Um, So I I understand that. Um, But I've been starting um, to work with the Nashville um, Community Crisis Response. And so we're working on a model that involves people in the community uh, responding when there's a mental health crisis. Um, And so, yeah, just starting to work through that and what that would look like and who would need to be involved. Um, And really hearing, again, from the communities um, themselves that are most affected, such as the unhoused, that's just one example that comes to mind, um, who have a lot of interaction uh, with the police uh, due to mental health issues. So um, I I really feel that that is a very, very important um, piece of, um, yeah, uh, mental health care in this city. Well, look. Is there any anything else you want to leave us with, man? I, this is this has been great. This has been I couldn't I couldn't ask for a better interview. Oh, thank you so much. Um, You're an I, excellent interviewer. Been, That's look, what I've enjoyed this. I really have. Um, pizza next time. Have I was a little offended that I did not get pizza. Well, I'm gonna look, let it go. Well, look, but look, look. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure the next time because you're gonna be a recurring guest. I am. Yeah, because we need people like you to come and update us and see what's going on. Okay. And give it to us real, right? Because you know, you know, other you know news media and things outlets won't yeah. let you speak how you yeah. want to speak and what needs to be said, right? And what actually needs to be heard. So we're gonna definitely have you back. But also, I'm gonna make sure you know. If, <laughs> look, look, people that don't know, she, she's from New England, Connecticut. They have a thing. They have they have a beef with this, you know, deep dish and. Thin crust, and so we got to make sure we don't offend a man. Deep dish is a lovely casserole, <laughs> but it is not pizza. Let's see, look, when you're a pizza lover like me, you don't discriminate. <laughs> you know, you're, like, you're from the Northeast, it's a thing. You know. So it's a thing. So down south, we don't have a we don't have a. Pizza I'm from thing. New Haven, right. Connecticut. I have to. Let, let me let me yeah. let me let me let, let me before I close. Let me break it down how serious pizza is right now. When I initially. Uh, broached Amanda about the whole the whole deep dish conversation thing and pizza, right? One, I think she was I think she she was offended, right? That I will ask her to come on and on a it's just the title deep dish. That's all. I think she was offended <laughs> by that. But she took it a step further to make sure she sent me the Forbes list of top pizza. And guess who's at the top? New Haven. New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven, Connecticut. Yes. And so uh, this is a serious thing, people. It is. And so you see Amanda. I'm Donald sorry. With deep dish. No. You're talking about Mm-mm. pizza. I just had to get that. No. Out of there. But I appreciate <laughs> your time, Amanda. Thank uh, you so much for having me. I appreciate. I, 
I appreciate what you do and what you stand for in the community, in, the, in your voice that you use um, to build community. I, I really do, and I hope people that's watching and listening to this, reach out to Amanda. She's always Please, willing to talk. anytime. And, and open-minded, and not to admit when she was wrong, oh. and, and and reflective on just things. This, this, she's just an, just an amazing person. Oh, um, thank I really you mean so that. much. No, I re- like I really mean that. Um, and yeah, I, I can't I can't wait to have you back. Well, right back at you. I am so thrilled with everything that you're doing. I can, this has just been so such a wonderful experience, and I'm just so glad to know you. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks. thank Until you. Next time. Okay.